do want to invite you to turn with me to Psalm 93. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do. We're going to be looking at the text quite a bit. We're going to ask the Holy Spirit to guide us, to give us understanding, to help us see what this text is saying. Psalm 93, beginning in verse 1, says, The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters. Mightier than the waves of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity, Lord, to look at your word together and do confess and know that should your spirit not attend the preaching of this word, it is in vain, Father. So we rely on the promise, the promise of our Lord Jesus to be with us wherever we are. And we ask, Lord, that as we open the scriptures, you open the understanding of our minds, that you would help for this word, Lord, to take root in our hearts and would help us as we continue living out this Christian life. We thank you, Lord, for sending your son to save, to redeem, and to keep to the uttermost, Lord, those who draw near to you by him. And we ask that uh, you would be with us in this time as your word goes out powerfully. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as we draw near to the close of yet another year, I'm sure it's natural to want to look back and see how we did with our resolutions, right? I told my wife this year I wanted to lose 15 pounds, and I am not ashamed to tell you I only have 20 more to go. <laughs> but honestly, as 2020 draws near, I, I want us to avoid what, what I'm sure our social feeds are filled with, right? Getting a new vision for 2020, seeing clearly in 2020, we have all these silly catchphrases about the number 2020. But what I would like for us to have in mind is not a new vision, perhaps, or not a new agenda, but I want us to consider old paths. I want us to look at ancient truths. I would desire for us to consider everlasting realities. You see, my aim this morning is to set before you the glory of God in such a way that you leave this place and enter into the new year in awe, amazed at the greatness of our God. You see, God, according to Psalm 93, is reigning and ruling over all of the created order. My desire is that his supreme sovereignty bolster your confidence as a new year draws near. What I do want us to see clearly, latching on to that 2020 catchphrase, is that over whatever happens in our lives, whether it be good or it is, in our estimation, bad, the Lord is sovereign. He is reigning. See, several times throughout my time in preparing this message, I, I tried to get away from this psalm. I felt that it might be too short. I tried to find other psalms or considered the parables of Jesus Christ to maybe teach this morning. But there was something about it that I, I simply could not resist. I couldn't stay away from it. It penetrated my heart and stayed with me throughout the last several weeks, and I hope that it honestly uh, does the same for you. I think that we desperately need to hear what this psalm is saying. 
You see, this psalm is the first of what are called enthronement or royal psalms. The enthronement or royal psalms are a subset of book four of the psalms, which have as their focus or as their center idea God's eternal kingship. This book four of the Psalms is unique. Primarily, number one, book four starts with the only Psalm that we know to be attributed to Moses. Now, that is Psalm 90. This would make it the oldest Psalm in the scriptures, according to, again, what we know. The book four of the Psalms is also unique because it is said by many to be the theological key to understanding the Psalms as a whole. And it is my belief that this Psalm here and the many related Psalms is going to be key for us to have peace in our hearts as a new year is upon us. You see, the major idea in the fourth book of the Psalms, and especially in the royal Psalms, again, is the sovereignty of God. Commonly found in this grouping of Psalms, you're going to notice the phrase, or better yet, the declaration or proclamation that the Lord reigns. We can find this refrain at least four times in this span of Psalms. These are going to come in rapid succession, but you can write them down. And feel free to look at them later. But Psalm 93.1, which we just read, says, The Lord reigns. Psalm 96.10 says, Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Psalm 97.1, the Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. And Psalm 99.1 says, The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. If these Psalms are saying anything, they're saying that Yahweh reigns. He is in command. He is in control of every situation. And that, brothers and sisters, should comfort us. It should comfort our souls. Now, with that in mind, let us turn our undivided attention here to Psalm 93. Again, I hope that we can get a glimpse of God's glory in this chapter and consider some implications of what is being said by the psalmist. It is because of God's reign that the world is made stable. It is also why the wicked are subdued, and it is finally why God's people are made holy. So as we work through this psalm, we're going to consider three main points and several observations along the way. First, we're going to look at the characteristics of God's reign. Second, we'll look at the opposition to God's reign. And finally, the stability and splendor of God's reign. So first, the characteristics of of God's reign. Let us start at the beginning. The first thing I want us to notice here in Psalm 93 verse 1 is that the Lord reigns. He just does. This statement is made firmly without any tack-ons, without any qualifications, without any arguments. It's a simple statement, but it is a strong statement. It is a statement of stability. There is a decisiveness in the language here that the Lord Reigns. It calls at the very least for an exclamation mark. And depending on the version that you have, your version might have that. What we see here is that Yahweh, the covenant name of God, he who is I am, he reigns. It's declaring that God is the chief and great monarch. It's declaring that God alone reigns, that he doesn't have advisors. He doesn't have counselors. He doesn't have a team around him to give him advice. No, he doesn't seek counsel. He doesn't take polls. He isn't voted for. He has no one around him to tell him what to do. The Lord, he reigns. This should be sweet music and delight to our souls. That he who created us watches over us. And that he's governing all things for his glory 
and for our good. And as we'll see later, is bringing to pass all things according to the counsel of his own will. The Lord, he alone reigns. Now, this isn't just a pick-me-up for a nation like Israel who might have just lost their king. No, this is exactly the Christian worldview. This is the anchor for the soul, that the Lord reigns. Contrary to what some churches teach and preachers preach, Satan does not have a throne set up on the other side of the universe from whence he is executing his government against God's reign. No, it is the Lord alone who reigns. There are no equals. There is no other. There are none by his side. We'll take a look at that third word, reigns. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord, the Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. That third word implies an ongoing reality. It's not only a declaration that Yahweh is king, which he is, but it is a declaration that Yahweh is reigning presently at this very moment he reigns. He has never not reigned over his creation. It is not a past truth. and It is not strictly a future event, though it is widely believed that these psalms certainly look forward to a messianic fulfillment. Reigns here is in the present tense or continuous. It's not the Lord will reign. It's not I can't wait for the Lord to start his reign. The Lord reigns. See, the Lord doesn't know what it's like to come into power. He doesn't know what it's like to assume a throne. The Lord has never been COO to the CEO. No, the Lord has reigned is reigning and will forever reign powerfully, majestically. The Lord reigns. I'll give you a counterexample of this. In 2 Kings 9, we read about Jehu being instituted as king. Now, the construction of that verse, though, is literally began to reign Jehu. In this psalm, we have the opposite construction. Yahweh reigns. You see, whereas Jehu came into power and was enthroned as king, Yahweh has always been and always will be the king of the universe. Brothers and sisters, our God is not merely an observant, distant deity. He didn't set the world in order and just walk away. He didn't give up his throne at any point in time. No, he is at this very moment, wisely, powerfully administering and governing from his throne. He is bringing all things to their appointed end. Now, notice the scope of his reign. You actually might not see it at first because it's not said in the text. There is no scope. Yahweh reigns over everything. The psalmist does not say Yahweh is king over his people. He didn't say that Yahweh is king over Israel. He didn't say the Lord reigns over us. No, it's the Lord reigns. That is the point, that Yahweh is the king of the entire universe. He and he alone reigns over everything. We'll see this fleshed out as we progress, but he reigns over nature. He reigns over even those who rebel against him. And he reigns wonderfully and majestically over those who love him and obey him. The Lord reigns supreme over all, everywhere, period. But now I want us to see how the Lord reigns. I'll just say that as a nation, our history with kings <laughs> isn't very good. The United States exists because we simply did not want to be ruled by who we deem to be a tyrannical king. So maybe our perception of monarchy isn't the best. But see, we don't have a tyrannical king in God. We don't have a king who doesn't care for his subjects or who demands fealty when it isn't deserved. No, the Lord deserves our loyalty. The Lord deserves our love. So this is a king that we love 
to serve. He doesn't rule simply with an iron fist. Verse 1, continuing on, says, He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. In some way or another, the Lord is both glorious and powerful. He is, if you will, wearing his royal robes as well as wearing a suit of armor. He's at the same time, he is powerful and he is majestic. Notice that it doesn't say that the robes of the Lord are majestic. See, I can look at someone's tie, I can look at someone's coat, someone's dress and say, wow, that is a beautiful dress. That is a beautiful article of clothing. That's a nice tie. We can say that certain things have a majestic-like quality about them. But it's not the Lord's clothes that have a majestic-like quality about them. It is that the Lord himself is dressed in majesty. Now, I don't know how to explain that properly. I can't quite picture it, and words will certainly fail me. But the Lord is dressed in dignity. He is exuding exaltedness. He is saturated with supremacy. There are literally not enough superlatives in this universe to properly ascribe to the Lord the majesty due to his name. For it is he who dwells in unapproachable light. We cannot even comprehend or imagine the beauty of his splendor. The greatness of his majesty. And this beautiful, exalted, magnificent God, he's not just beautiful. He is, as the psalmist says, girded with strength. He is as a warrior who is ready for battle. He doesn't have someone fight his battles for him. No, the scriptures make it very clear that God goes before us to vanquish our foes and give us the victory. The Lord is girded with strength. He has the authority, power, and strength to back up all of his claims. You see, we've heard of generals, commanders-in-chief who get to sit in comfort while their armies go out and do battle. They get to call the shots and someone else needs to go execute. Lord doesn't do that. Lord himself will fight for us and has fought for us and won the victory. He's a beautiful, exalted, magnificent God who is girded with strength. When Jesus said in John 10, you don't have to turn there, but he gave his sheep eternal life and he declares, they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. He is girded with strength. Now we might be tempted to believe as we read this psalm that there might be a time when the Lord, well, maybe he's not girded with strength. Or is there a time when he's not majestic? But that's not what the psalm is saying. He is saying rather that the majesty and the strength which God always possesses will be set forth before all the peoples at an appointed date and time. You see, us as Christians, we get to enjoy the privilege of knowing God's strength in redemption, of seeing his majesty in in the beauty of his holiness. We get to know that the peoples of the nations, though, those who hate God and hate his anointed, they can't appreciate that at this moment. But when that day comes, the great and terrible day of the Lord, when that day comes, all the nations will see the beauty, strength, and majesty of our God. Continue on in verse 2. You see the psalmist declare, Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. Now I don't know if you notice the shift in who the psalmist is addressing. It's almost as if in the beginning he's addressing the assembly and he's saying, the Lord reigns. He is encouraging us. Suddenly in verse 2, it's as if he's speaking to God himself. And he says, your throne is established from of old. You are 
from everlasting. Now, what does that mean, that the world is established? End of verse 1. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. What, what does that mean? Now, you may not realize it, but the very concepts and laws of mathematics and logic and reason all hinge upon and rely on this to be true. You see, his rule and reign underpin the whole cosmos. Everything that is seen and is unseen is upheld by the mighty hand of God. From the greatest supermassive black hole to the smallest quark or subatomic particle, everything owes its existence to God, the mover behind them all. Now, the fact that God established order and created the order ensures that the world around us is predictable. It's dependable. Why? Because he's dependable. In scientific pursuits, for example, reproducibility and replicability are key. You have to be able to reproduce something for it to be true. You have to be able to do it over and over again. Now, do you ever wonder? Have you ever wondered? I'm sure in a room this size, we do have some strange individuals who have wondered these things. But do you ever wonder why friction works in your brakes? How the law of friction works? How when you press the brake pedal, your vehicle will start to decelerate. You will come to a halt. Do you ever wonder why when you put a pot of water over a flame at roughly the same temperature every single time it will come to a boil? Do you ever consider why the sun will surely set in the evening and as long as the Lord gives us another day will rise in the morning? Do you ever think about these things? Most of us, I'm sure we do not. We simply live. But those things are true and only true because the Lord established the earth. And it shall not be moved. You see, God is a God of order. And he established the world. Yes, you can thank the law of gravity for keeping things from floating away. But behind the law of gravity is the God who established that very law. He is the one to thank for all these things. The earth shall never be moved lest God himself move it. Everything hangs upon this reality. But the real trouble is that we are quick to put our faith in what we can see. We are quick to put our confidence in the things that we can see and behold and hold and touch and handle and feel. You don't have to talk about doubting Thomas saying, unless I see the scars, right? Take the Israelites here, for example. See, while an earthly king sat on the throne, they were confident. They believed that things were going to be going their way. They forgot that the earthly king simply represented a higher king. You see, that is why we don't put our faith in political parties. We don't put our faith in presidents, as princes, kings, or queens. No, our ultimate faith is in the God who is behind them all. Our ultimate faith is in the God who places kings and removes kings whenever and however he wants to. Our ultimate faith is in the declaration that the Lord reigns. This is a great assurance, brothers and sisters. No other king has been from everlasting no other potentate has possessed a throne from of old the way our Lord has. Men are born princes, yes, but they are not born kings. The Lord has been a king from everlasting, and he will always be the everlasting king. Yes, the nations and rulers of this world will parade around with their missiles and tanks and armies, but this is simply borrowed power. It is not intrinsic to them. This is delegated authority. God's throne, however, is established from of old. He was and is and is to come. He will never not reign. His enemies, therefore, cannot, will not endure. In the blink of an eye, they will be extinguished. God is reigning and will bring every evildoer and every wicked act under his judgment. And he will not be merciful then 
I do implore you today on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. One theologian said, when Christ first came, he came to slay sin and men. But when he returns, he will come to slay men in sin. Be reconciled to this everlasting, eternal, majestically robed God. Now, as a result of this reality that God's throne is established from of old, we have confidence when we send our missionaries worldwide. We have confidence. If you pull up your map app and swipe anywhere and drop a pin, regardless of what nation or authority or tribe or people is there, the bigger reality is that the Lord reigns. That is our confidence. That is why we do what we do to support missionaries. Recall the scene in Isaiah 6, verse 1, when Isaiah makes note that the king, King Uzziah, the king in the land had died. Isaiah saw a vision of the Lord high and lifted up. You see, King Uzziah was a great king. The nation of Israel prospered under his reign. The army was built up. The walls of Jerusalem were reconstructed. Towers were added. A large army was maintained. Yet the nation's prosperity under Uzziah was considered to have been a result of his loyalty to Yahweh, the supreme king. When the king in the earth died, Isaiah got a greater vision of the king of heaven and earth. And that is what we must do, brothers and sisters. We must cast ourselves upon the mercy of this God. We must know that his ways are far above our ways, that he is from everlasting, that he is consistent, he is majestic. And yet, while all this is true, the psalmist goes on to note that there are some who hate this king, who hate his reign, who hate this consistent, majestic, girded with strength God. So two, let us consider the opposition to God's reign. Verse three, the floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. First, just make a note in the increase of basically the tempo here. Whereas we had sort of a, a one and two pattern in verses one and two, the author now uses almost a set of triplets so as to increase the tension. Take a look at verses one and two when it's, the Lord reigns, he is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed, he has put on strength as his belt, etc. But in verse 3, we suddenly have an escalation. We have, the floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Mightier, verse 4, than the thunders of many waters. Mightier than the waves of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. If anything, it's at least a brilliant use of poetic elements to draw us in to what's happening here. We see a sudden drastic shift in the tone of this psalm. Suddenly, our vision of the celestial is pierced by earthly turmoil. We are made keenly aware that there are very real issues which plague this earth. You can almost hear a shift in the music, right? What was beautiful band of clarinets playing is suddenly overtaken by a rock organ. Hans Zimmer was cued in. Yes, God reigns in majesty and might, but don't you see the darkness here in the land? Don't, that, that's what these waters represent. Darkness, evildoers, God-haters, rebels against God's authority. They represent death and chaos. These are the floods. You would almost be tempted to believe that this psalm was actually written just yesterday, brother and sister. Everywhere we look, we see men foaming at the mouth in rage against our God and his government. It's a true testament to the fact that very little has changed over the last several thousand years. Men in their utter depravity by nature, hate God, and they hate his anointed. God reigns, and yet the wicked, depraved men of the earth gnash their teeth and rebel against him today as they always have. They want to overthrow his rule. They want to escape from under his control. They hate God. They hate his anointed. They hate his chosen ones. But notice first that the psalmist 
doesn't even address the waves. He doesn't address them directly. He makes note of them, sure, but he doesn't waste his time trying to subdue him. That is something we could all take a cue from. He is very aware of the fact that though the waters are mighty, yes, they are lifting, yes, they are rising, yes, they are roaring. But in verse 4, he declares, but God is mightier still. No matter how hard the waves hit the beach, no matter how loud their crashing is against the shore, our God is mightier still. He is mightier than the loudest waves. He is mightier than the strongest seas. But second, notice that the psalmist is not ashamed to bring this petition before the Lord or this concern before God. See, our confidence in God's sovereignty does not mean that we no longer come to him in prayer. I've had many ask me that before. Well, if God is sovereign, then why evangelize <laughs> Why pray for anything? Why do you pray for the conversion of loved ones? If God is sovereign, he's going to do it anyway. Yes, but God ordains the means as well as the ends. And oftentimes, he sets his people praying before he does something great. Jonathan Edwards said that. I've also heard it said that those things that we, which we don't bring to God, those are the things we think we can handle on our own. May God spare us from such foolishness. Bring it to God. The psalmist brought his plight, his concern to God. The floods, oh Lord, you can almost hear the trembling in his voice. The floods have lifted up, oh Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Bring your troubles to the one who has his eye on the sparrow. He has the very hairs of your head numbered. He cares for you. He wants to hear you pray. Our God can't only just answer prayer. He delights to answer prayer. He delights to have you come before him on your knees or in your prayer closet, on the road or at church, wherever you may be, praying to him. The Lord delights to hear his people cry out to him. Everyone and everything may fail you, but the Lord will not and never forsake you. The opposition may be numerous. Here, the floods have this idea of many floods. I've never seen a flood that is contained in you know, three feet space. I wouldn't call that a flood. No, a flood generally has the depiction or has the idea of something massive, something huge, something uncontainable. It is unstoppable. It is unsparing. The floods, O oh Lord, they have lifted up. The opposition may be strong. Yes, the floods are roaring. But the Lord, verse 4, mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Regardless of this rising tumult in the land, this mighty God is mightier still, the Lord reigns. Even in the midst of toil and trouble, the Lord, he reigns. I will build my church, says Jesus Christ, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Mightier than the floods of many waters is our God. As I was preparing for today, I read the story of a king named King Canute. I don't know if anyone's ever read this tale. Allegedly takes place in the 12th century, illustrating the piety of and the humility of this great King Canute. In the story, Canute demonstrates to his flattering and, and foolish courtiers that he has no control over the elements. You see, they, they were convinced, the courtiers, those who, who made up his court, his advisors, etc., they were convinced that he was such a powerful king that he could command the winds and the waves. Finally, deciding to put an end to this foolishness, Canute says, okay, take my throne down to the seashore, and you will see. So he begins to indulge in their foolishness and say, okay, sea, tide, stop where you are. Don't come any further. Stop right there. And, and what happened? I'm sure you can guess what happened next. King Canoe got wet. <laughs> he could not stop the tide. 
he could not prevent the waters from rising. His people were yelling, surely, O king, you are so powerful that you can hold back the tides and the seas. But in comes the tide. The king gets wet, continuing to rise as usual. The tide dashes over his feet. His legs begins to wet him without respect of his royal person, regardless of what he was wearing, how majestic his clothing was, how powerful his scepter is. The king leaps backwards and says, let all men know how empty and worthless is the power of kings, for there is none worthy of the name but he whom heaven, earth, and sea obey by eternal laws. He then, as the story goes, hung his crown on a gold crucifix, never wore it again, quote, to the honor of God the Almighty. You see, kings don't have this sort of power. They do not have this sort of authority. They end up wet, but not this king. The Lord on high is mightier. His throne cannot be touched. His eternal decrees, we will see, will come to pass. Psalm 89, 8-9 says, O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are? O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. These raging waters, no matter how violent they may seem, present no challenge to the one who commands the winds and the waves. Even this apparently uncontrollable force cannot pose a threat to the king of kings and lord of lords. He is robed in majesty. He is girded with strength. And as the floods lift their voice and as the waters shout at the final day, they will all ultimately, you know what they would do? They will resound to the glory of God. Even the screams and the anguishing of the evildoers will resound to the glory of God. The floods will praise God. He commands them. He quells them. We are told in Job 38, 11, that it is the Lord who tells the seas and their proud waves just how high they are permitted to come. So both in the natural and in the spiritual, our Lord controls the floods. Our Lord controls the chaos. You see, floods and tsunamis and hurricanes, they're not the result of God losing his control of the elements. No, they are a sign that God is in control. You see, when the waters remain in their bounds, we can safely conclude that the Lord is blessing the land. He's kept the waters in their bounds. When the waters rise and cause destruction, we can clearly infer that God is demonstrating his judgment. He is showing forth his holiness. He's reminding us that one day the entire earth shall be shaken by his judgments. To that point, let me read to you Isaiah 8, 7, and 8. The Lord says, Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria in all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah, and it will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Or Jeremiah 6.23, where God is speaking about a people coming from the north country, and he says, they are cruel and have no mercy. The sound of them is like the roaring See, they ride on horses set in array as a man for battle against you, O daughter of Zion. You see, the surging aggression of the wicked is well represented by the pounding of the waves. Yet we read here that God is enthroned above all this turmoil. You can almost go back at this point and read Psalm 2 and just pick right up where this leaves off. But be sure of this, that he who sits in the heavens laughs. Mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves on the sea of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. I'm reminded of a time when the disciples were out at sea with our Lord Jesus. We have to recall these were experienced fishermen. 
This wasn't their first rodeo, so to speak. They knew the Sea of Galilee. They had to have been well acquainted with the tempests and storms that would come to just take control of the seas, really. The winds would kick up the waves. The waves would threaten their lives. They, they were well acquainted with this. But what happens? Jesus is asleep on the boat. His disciples wake him up in an alarm. Don't you care that we drown? Are you not concerned with our well-being? What happened then? The Lord rebukes the wind. He calms the waves. How? Simply by speaking to them. And how do the disciples respond? That's when they knew true fear. You see, they, they might have been afraid of the waves. They might have been afraid of the wind. They might have been fearful of the storm. But only when they saw that the Lord had control even over these things, that is when true fear filled their hearts. They said, what manner of man is this? Who is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. Yes, the waves rise, but the Lord on high is mightier. He doesn't need an army or a nuclear arsenal. Three words from his lips, peace be still, and they are vanquished. To us, a flood seems unstoppable and unsparing, but to the Lord, these waters are but noise on the beach. Finally, in verse 5, your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. We see it's almost as if it, there's another sudden shift here. Uh, first, we have the Lord on high, clothed with strength and majesty. Then the mighty waters over which the Lord reigns supreme. And now suddenly, the psalmist declares that his testimonies are very sure and holiness adorns his house forever. It's not really a shift. I would call it a narrowing down. You see, we've moved from creation to kingdom. The Creator God is a covenant-keeping God. That's what the psalmist is saying. While we don't see the world at perfect peace just yet, we know that the permanence of the Lord himself ensures the permanence of his decree. As sure as the Lord lives and reigns, so sure is his word. It is established. It shall not pass. His decrees are unchanging because God's Character is unchanging. His testimonies are very sure. His decrees are very trustworthy. Notice he doesn't just say your decrees are trustworthy. They are very trustworthy. They are literally amen. Your decrees are very sure. God established the world. He established his reign over the world. And he established his firm, unchanging decrees to govern the world and all that comes to pass. The Lord reigns. He is robed with majesty and strength. The world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from of everlasting. Yes, the floods lift up, brother and sister. Yes, the floods have lifted up their voice. Yes, the floods lift up their mighty roaring. But mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty in his decrees. They are very trustworthy. His word is sure. What was true a generation ago, what was true... 2,000 years ago, what was true in eternity past will be true today, tomorrow, next year, and forever. The Lord does not change. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. The faithfulness of God's word, what the psalmist is saying here, proves his sovereign reign. And more than that, it renders his people holy. As a result, ending of verse 5, holiness befits or fills his house. He doesn't just rule with raw or brute strength. No, he rules with righteousness. He rules in perfect holiness. Psalm 98, 1 
instructs us, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand, there is his strength, and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. If you want to look at Psalm 99, just a couple pages ahead of Psalm 93, verses 3, 5, and 9, let them praise your great and awesome name. What's the response? Holy is he. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. What's the response? Holy is he. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain. For the Lord our God is holy. Yes. Majestic, yes. Mighty, yes. But holy as well. There's a sense in that when he is at home with his people, his holiness shines forth in a very distinctive and special way. You see, he draws near to bless those who know him and to secure and ensure their holiness. It can be said that holiness befits God's house in several ways. First, the temple, right? You have the holy place, and then you have the holy of holies. You could say that God's spiritual house, the church, is holy. We are the called out ones, ecclesia. Holiness befits God's smaller spiritual house, the believer, for you are to be holy as your heavenly Father is holy. And holiness befits his spiritual and his eternal home, heaven, his eternal abode. You see, God is set apart, and he has set apart his holy ones. He will secure and has secured the holiness of his people forevermore. That is what the psalmist is declaring that his everlasting abode will always be adorned with holiness, for it is a proper reflection of who he is. Holiness is the fitting response to and the proper expression of God's rule and reign among his people. He doesn't have blinking Christmas lights adorning his house. No, he has his saints whom he has redeemed to adorn his house forever. Friends, the reality that this holy, majestic, everlasting God reigns is unalterable. Whether you want to recognize it or not, Yahweh is king, Christ is Lord. And that is great news. But that is only great news for you if you belong to him. Just as he is forever, his holiness is forever. As such, his victory over his foes and the power to vanquish all of his enemies is true forever. It is true now. It, is, it will be true next year if the Lord gives us permission. And it will be true for unending days. That's what the psalmist is saying. When the proverbial waters, consider this, when the proverbial waters were at Jesus' neck, if you will, he set his eyes on the joy before him. Before him was the joy of being exalted to God's right hand in the midst of the assembly of his brethren. His hand had grasped the plow of grace and he was in no attitude to turn back. He had no intention to ever look back. You see, though a sea of wrath awaited our Lord in that bitter cup, he drank it down for the glory of God and for our good. In John 12, you don't have to turn there, I'll read it. The Lord announces in verse 23 that the hour had come for the Son of Man to be glorified. My death is here. In verse 27, we read, Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, but for this very purpose, I have come to this hour. He, the eternal God, who commands the winds and the waves tasted death for us that we might live to God 
together with him. You see, the noise of many waters, brothers and sisters, they will be silenced. The floods and the crashing of the waves, they will cease. Revelation 21 gives us a picture of the heavenly throne of the New Jerusalem, and it says the sea, have you ever wondered about that verse? The sea will be no more. There will be no more chaos and separation between God and man. No further, Revelation 21 goes on to say that the dwelling place of God, his holy habitation, will be with us, and he himself will dwell with us. We will be his people, and God himself will be with us as our God. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the former things shall have passed away. Brothers and sisters, the noise of many waters will be silenced. Listen, the Lord reigns even when the storms are raging around us. Even if it appears that he's asleep in the boat, he is with us. The new year will undoubtedly bring new challenges. But I encourage you, look back to these promises of God of old. They will surely renew your strength. We belong to our beloved and our beloved belongs to us. We are the apple of his eye. You see, this is the love of Christ for us. A love which many waters cannot quench. A love which floods cannot drown Brother, sister, friend in this place today, do you know that? Do you know this God? Do you know this love? Is he your tower of refuge when the storms come? You see, the Lord reigns. That is the believer's shout of triumph. That is the Christian's hope in trouble. That is the comfort that we have in this life. The Lord reigns, and that is the enduring joy and everlasting peace that we will enjoy those who love him. Let me pray. Father, we are simply astounded that you would call us to yourself, knowing, O oh Lord, that nothing good resides in us, yet you sent your Son in love to save us. You sent your Son, O oh Lord, to redeem us. We ask, Father, that we not fret about the many waters that may rise, that we may not be concerned, O oh Lord, at the state of this world as it is and as it is becoming. We ask, O oh Father, that you would let us fix our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith. Lord, help us by your spirit to walk in the newness of life to which you have called us. Help us, O oh Lord, to trust in you, to know that your promises are sure, and to know that we will be holy and are holy as you are holy. Father, we ask this in the name of Christ our Lord.